welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In today's episode, we interview Marty Barron, executive editor of the Washington Post and last year's winner of the Al Newharth Award for Excellence in the Media. An acclaimed journalist, his role on covering the Boston Catholic sexual abuse scandal was highlighted in the Oscar award-winning movie Spotlight. Marty was a guest on campus earlier this year where he spoke to us about getting his start in journalism, what it's like to be portrayed in a movie, his thoughts on the current state of media, and of course, what he thinks of media in the age of Donald Trump. We're here with Marty Barron, executive editor of the Washington Post. Marty, it's an honor to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Having a good time. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what sparked your initial interest in becoming a journalist. Sure. Uh, look, my, my parents were immigrants to the United States. Uh, they were keenly interested in what was happening in this country and what was happening around the world. So we had a daily news diet in our household. Uh, they got the local newspaper. Uh, they got the uh, they got uh, they listened to the t- to television for local news and for the national news, uh, and then they got a weekly news magazine, Time Magazine, at that time. And so uh, it was part of the habit in our household. And so I think I got interested. I don't know necessarily in newspapers immediately, but certainly in coverage of world affairs and coverage of the community. And so uh, I got intrigued. I as 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 early as junior high school, I got interested in in newspapers and. And then I uh, became editor of my high school newspaper. I became editor of my college newspaper. Uh, I took journalism courses in college and got a journalism major in addition to another major. And uh, and and I worked every summer at my uh, my hometown newspaper in Tampa, Florida. And uh, so it was it was sort of I wasn't one of those kids who went searching for what he wanted to do. Uh, I knew immediately what I wanted to do. You know, I think many people, at least around here, might know you from the movie Spotlight, which highlighted obviously your Pulitzer Prize-winning work with the Boston Globe, uncovering, you know, the sexual abuse scandal which involved um, the, the Boston Catholic Church. I'm curious, though, is there another story maybe in your career that you feel is as consequential or provided you with maybe your big break? Uh, well, I think there are other consequential stories. That is a story that probably was the most fulfilling of my entire career because it had such a dramatic impact on ordinary people's lives. Uh, these were uh, people who weren't being heard uh, by anyone else, uh, people who didn't have any power, uh, people whose, whose uh, concerns, whose, whose victimization had been essentially suppressed and ignored and dismissed uh, by a very powerful institution. So that's the story that meant a lot to me. Um, I've been very proud of the work that we're doing at the at the Washington Post right now in terms of coverage of this this administration. I feel good about that. I think we'll fu- we're fulfilling our role uh, as envisioned in the First Amendment and how the and and why we have a First Amendment in this in this country and with the idea of holding our politicians and our policymakers, our government accountable. Uh, so I feel very good about that work as well. But there's a lot there are a lot of things in, in the course of my career that I feel proud of. You know it. Obviously, you make your living telling people stories. How was it to kind of have your story told to a certain extent? You mean as in the movie? Yes. Uh, well, that's very strange. Uh, so, um, you know, it's uh, first of all, you don't do the work with the expectation that it's going to be a movie. We certainly did not, and this movie didn't come out until about seven years after we published our first uh, our first story. Actually, more than seven years after we published our first story, it took seven years just from the time that we were we were presented with the idea for the movie to come out. So, um, 
So it's it's uh, it's weird. I mean, when when Liev Schreiber came to talk to me and to meet me, and he's the guy who portrayed me in the movie, uh, we spent maybe a little less than two hours together. That's about it. Uh, it became apparent to me that this was uh, not an interview in a conventional sense. Not so much what he could learn, as to, as as opposed to what he could observe about me and my mannerisms and things right. like that. And you know that when you're you're talking to let's say a, a psychiatrist, it's all confidential. But when you're talking to an actor who's going to portray you. The objective there is to reveal his observations to the entire world. So it's, it's, it's certainly strange. You know, your forte is obviously investigative journalism. I think, you know, speaking of movies, people kind of have this Hollywood-esque depiction of shadowy figures in parking lots. I'm curious, you know, how does the normal investigative journalism piece start? Well, it's hard to say that there's a normal because there's so many different types of investigative pieces. A lot of it starts with somebody simply simply observing something and saying, well, there's more, there must be more here. This is an interesting subject. And they start pulling the thread. They start talking to more people. They ask more questions. Uh, they pursue the story. Uh, and like any thread that you might pull, all of a sudden, sometimes things start to unravel. Uh, and frequently that's how it's done. But there's a, inevitably a lot of tedium involved talking to a lot of people, uh, maybe to trying to reach people who don't want to talk to you. Also, a tremendous amount of research with documents uh, going through a public uh, files that are in the public realm, so court files, uh, things like that, law enforcement files, wh what have you, all the kinds of documents that are, that are available in the public record, and then sometimes some things that are not. Uh, and also, for it sometimes starts with reporters who have been on a beat for some time and who have developed some very good sources, uh, who are willing to clue them in on things that uh, maybe they should be they should be taking a look at. Well, and that was my next question. Was I think one of the things that's in the public lexicon is leakers or the concept of a leak? Yeah, first of all, you know, in in journalism parlance, what is a leak? And more importantly, how do journalists verify sources and make the decision of what? leak to publish and what maybe to keep in the pocket? Well, look, I mean, first of all, a leak, there are various definitions of what a leak is. So, uh, you know, we have, for example, a White House that complains about leaks, but it's the White House that leaks all the time. So, and deliberately so, uh, where they actually, they try to spread information by providing information to selected journalists or what have you. Uh, and they they choose not to be named. They want to be called a high-level high administration official or something like that. Uh, other times, things uh, are provided to you by other people within government uh, who are concerned about what they're seeing occur. Um, now, you recognize that uh, somebody who leaks inevitably has some sort of agenda, whether it's the president himself who's leaking or his, his advisors who are leaking, or whether it's other people within government who m may wish to share, to share information. The important thing is to recognize what that agenda is uh, and then to do additional reporting. That You don't just rely on one person. You talk to a lot of different people. First of all, you try to get verification for the underlying, underlying facts, uh, support for those underlying facts, and then you try to get different perspectives. So there may be different ways of interpreting those facts uh, that you yourself may not even have thought of. I'm curious how journalists balance, you know, competing priorities, whether it's national security versus the right to know. Is there a formalized process um, where, you know, the editorial board makes a judgment call or, or is it really just, you know, on any given circumstance you're sort of, you know, going with the information you have available at that time? Well, we do have standards on that. Our basic standard is, is this a matter that's in the public interest? If it's not a matter in the public interest, then, then we don't do it. Just because we learn something doesn't mean that we're going to publish it. Inevitably, there are things that we learn and we say, well, there's no, there's no really public 
interest in this subject, and it doesn't serve any public interest. But at other times, uh, it does, and we feel that the American public does deserve to know that. I mean, I think that fundamental to our mission as journalists is to give people the information they need and deserve to know as citizens of this country. Uh, and citizens mean, means being uh, participating in the actual uh, in governance. It's, it's, it's government you know, by and by and for the people, of by and for the people. And so uh, that requires the public to actually participate, which means they need information in order to participate. Otherwise, uh, they're not they're not full participants. And so we try to evaluate whether uh, classified information, national security information is something that uh, that serves the public interest if it were to be revealed. And of course, there are conflicting interests and conflicting points of view. You know, how has technology changed, I guess, the basic blocking and tackling of journalism? At a press conference a few minutes ago, you talked about the number of uh, staff that the Washington Post has. You said it was 800, which actually surprised me. I thought that was a large amount. You know, has the amount of information available forced you to hire additional researchers? Or how does the Post handle just the wealth of information that might come in on any you know, particular topic? Uh, well, of course, we divide our staff into beats, uh, so uh, we have a structure like that. And so people who are in charge of science are overseeing what's happening in that field. People in charge of education are overseeing what's happening in that field. People in charge of environment, people in charge of national security or covering the White House uh, or covering business, one at technology or whatever it might be. And so they're really monitoring what they, what's happening in their field and making determinations about what's the most, what they deem to be the most important. Uh, those can be subjective judgments. There's no formula uh, for these sorts of things. Uh, but they are taking the measure of that and then every day uh, working on the things that they consider to be the most the most consequential. You know, it's hard to, I think, ignore the Trump administration. And you've been quoted as saying, you know, that the Washington Post isn't at war with the Trump administration. They're just doing their job. I think some critics would maybe say that it's not the investigative pieces themselves, but it's the, you know, focus on what they would call the negative aspects of the Trump administration rather than the positives, or maybe even the negatives of everyone else, right? That the, you know, Post or, you know, national media in general kind of focus in. What would you say to that critic about, you know, what goes into the choices that, you know, media organizations are forced to cover when it comes to, you know, a president or a political campaign? Well, you know, I mean, I think, look, we're going to have critics no matter what we do. Uh, we had critics of us uh, in covering the Obama administration. They just happened to be a different brand of critic. Uh, so whatever government we cover, we're going to have critics. That just comes with the territory. Uh, and nobody, you're never going to get unanimity of, uh, on a point of view about how one should cover any particular administration. Uh, our view is that we should hold government accountable, we should hold our politicians accountable, we should talk as much as we can and write as much as we can about how policies are put into effect and who they uh, and who is affected by those policies. Uh, and that's what we're doing with this, with this administration. I don't agree that, it's, that we're just going out there to do the negative. Uh, and, you know, if the, if the Trump administration has a success, as it, it had certainly a, a political success with regard to the tax cut, we certainly, you know, gave that a huge amount of publicity. But you also want to look at, okay, well, who's getting, who's getting those tax cuts? You have to look at that. I mean, to not do so is an abdication of your responsibility as a journalist. You know, do you buy the criticism that maybe too much attention was paid on the Trump campaign during the 2016 election cycle, and in a way, it maybe elevated Trump in a position that, you know, he shouldn't have necessarily been in? Uh, I don't really buy into that criticism. I mean, I think that... Uh, 
Look, uh, there was a very large field of uh, candidates uh, for the Republican nomination. Uh, as soon as Donald Trump talked about uh, Mexicans as rapists, uh, he, he garnered 30% support uh, among the GOP electorate almost overnight. Uh, and he became the leading candidate in a field where there were lots and lots of candidates. Uh, and so he was the front runner almost from the very, almost from the very beginning of that campaign. And we had to take that seriously. Uh, he was winning primary after primary. How do you pretend that that's not happening? Uh, if he's holding rallies and large numbers of people are showing up, uh, if he's winning primaries uh, one after the next, uh, if he's the front runner, he, he deserves our, our attention and he deserves our scrutiny, and we tried to give him both. Now, I do have a problem with how some of cable news actually covered him in the sense that the, those rallies were covered uh, from beginning to end without interruption, and it was essentially free advertising. And there was no intermediary there, no one to say what he just said doesn't happen to be true. It's not actually borne out by the facts. Uh, it was just basically hours and hours of free advertising. So that's not something that we did, uh, but it's something that happened on, on cable news, and I think that that was, I think that was concerning. I don't consider that to be journalism, actually. You know, you said that obviously every administration is critical of the press to some degree. It's natural. They're trying to influence the coverage of, you know, their policies and their administration. Has you know, this president in particular crossed some sort of line with some of the language that he's used against journalists? Well, he's certainly gone where uh, most other presidents have not gone, at least since the Nixon administration, that's, the, that's for sure. And he's probably gone beyond what happened during the Nixon administration. Uh, at every stage, he started. He would mark. He tried. He certainly tried to marginalize us. He tried to delegitimize us. He tried to. He endeavored to demean us. He even tried to dehumanize us, calling us uh, garbage scum, uh, the lowest form of humanity, and when that wasn't enough, the lowest form of life itself. Uh, he's called us enemy, enemy of the people. Uh, he's called us everything that you can you can imagine. And the objective there is to try to discredit the idea, the very idea of an independent press. I think that's really concerning because the reality is you do not have you do not have a democracy in this world uh, that doesn't have a free and independent press. If you don't have a free and independent press, you are not going to have a democracy. And if we believe in this country that we should have a democracy, uh, and that is the idea behind our country, uh, then. Um, then you have to support the idea of a free and independent press. Doesn't mean you don't have to be. You can't be critical of us. Uh, people should be critical of us. They should hold us accountable, just as they hold anybody else accountable. Uh, but you don't want to have a situation where the press is simply a mouthpiece uh, for the administration that happens to be in power. You know, conversely, I think one interesting idea um, that has been, you know, at least talked about. <laughs> amongst the media is maybe some of the president's advisors sometimes try to send messages through certain outlets or, or, or through certain channels. What do you make of this? I mean, do you think there's any truth to that? And, and what does that speak to, I guess? Well, I'm sure they do try to send messages in one way or another through outlets, perhaps like the Washington Post, but also by giving interviews to Fox News, which the president watches regularly. Uh, and sometimes they feel that uh, the best way to reach the president is to be giving an interview to, the, to Fox News. Uh, so um, that's just the nature of politics. I mean, I don't think that that's anything unusual in this administration. Uh, you know, people in power are going to try to use whatever means they have available to them to influence uh, policy and to influence the president. And that's just the, na that's the nature of politics. We're not going to put an end to that. You know, to kind of transition away maybe from the Trump administration for a second, I think as a journalist, you know, you've kind of had this unique perch to view 
historical events throughout history. Obviously, some of that you probably can't share information that wasn't ever verified, but maybe you suspected. I'm curious if, you know, this kind of inside view that you've had of government, significant events, business, has it changed the way that you've looked at business or how the government operates? Hmm. Uh, well, not entirely, really. Uh, I would say that I've always been kind of skeptical of politicians. Uh, look, most of my career was not spent in Washington, by the way. It was spent out in the rest of the country. I worked in uh, Florida. I worked in California. I worked in Massachusetts. Uh, I worked in New York. Uh, so, and one of the things, one of, when I first started as a reporter, and I was working in uh, South Florida, and uh, one of the things that I realized very quickly is that what was being said in Washington didn't resonate with uh, people in the region that I was that I was covering. Uh, that somebody in Washington, a staff member, for example, may have thought they were writing a law that was going to have a dramatic impact, uh, but I knew for a fact that nobody in the rest of the country cared or was going to feel the effects of that particular law. So I've always been pretty skeptical about what happens within the so-called bubble of, of Washington, and I remain, I, I remain so. And um, I think that, so my fundamental view of, uh, of politics and of government uh, hasn't changed. Uh, I don't think fundamentally just because of this, this administration. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious you say that. I, that struck a chord with me because I think that's something that you probably hear, you know, in the heartland um, is that much of what gets talked about in national media, it's just not relevant to agricultural policy, which is what people around here care about. Right. Does that figure into editorial decisions that, you know, you make? Are you trying to find content and stories that are applicable to all parts of the country? Oh, totally. Yeah. We I mean, we I'm, I think that. Uh, you know, we learned some lessons from the coverage of, uh, of the last election, last presidential election. I think uh, where we failed is not detecting sort of a level of anxiety and grievance in, in much of American society that led to a candidacy such as Donald Trump's. Uh, and so we've had a lot of conversations among ourselves about how can we make sure that we do better, make sure that we're listening to people in every corner of this country. And so we actually have a whole team. It's about eight people who are responsible for constantly getting out into the rest of the country uh, and talking to people and spending a lot of time there. Uh, we also have a freelance network. Uh, we have thousands of people in that freelance network in every state and in pretty much every community in this country, or at least a large portion of the communities in this country, who are who we ask to actually let us know what's happening in your community, what uh, proposed stories that are happening there. And I also think it's important to remember that what a lot of what happens in Washington, uh, notwithstanding what I said before, actually does have an enormous impact on uh, people, for example, in this part of the country. So trade policy, for an example, if you have a, a policy of nationalism, if you have a policy of uh, of uh, being opposed to uh, trade policies as, as they've been articulated for, for many decades now, uh, and it leads to a trade war, uh, then that's going to have potentially an enormous impact on an agricultural uh, state such as South Dakota. You know, the last question, and then, you know, I'll kind of leave you with that, is hopefully a little bit reflective. I'm curious what advice you would offer, you know, a new journalist. Are there certain tools that you think are universal to what makes a good journalist? Or are there certain things that an upcoming journalist would need to know today um, that maybe you didn't need to know when you started your career? Well, there are 
they're technology tools, but I don't think that those are the most important tools. I think the most important tool is the one that has existed ever since I became a journalist. And that's the mental tool, uh, which first of all is of being curious about the world, uh, having a lot of questions, and, and uh, at, at, at its core means being more impressed with what you don't know than, than with what you do know. Uh, and that means that you're a constant learner. Uh, there's never a question that you can't or shouldn't ask. Uh, you should always have more questions than have been answered because it's always the next question, the last question, that could provide you with greater insight than you had, than you had before. And so anybody who gets into journalism and doesn't view himself or herself as, a, as a, a constant learner, as someone who always needs to learn more and should never assume they know it all, uh, then that's a person who probably shouldn't be in journalism. Marty, thank you so much for joining with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview CEO of the Museum Institute in Washington, D.C., Gene Polizinski, about the state of media and challenges to the First Amendment. Until next time, go Yotes.